Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello, educators. You are so impressive. I can't believe you've come out for an excursion first week back. Seriously impressive. Are you exhausted? Yeah. Are you rethinking your career? <laughs> I always remember that moment after the first, well, probably the first day or so of teaching, afternoon naps. Uh, welcome. Uh, Art Gallery of South Australia, Ghana, Yatangi, Yuandi. We meet, of course, on Ghana country here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. My name's Lisa Slade, and I'm joined by my colleagues, and you've already met Tom Reddit, of course, and Kylie, I know, has just presented. And you got to meet the new boss, which is very exciting. I'm going to spend a little bit of time with you in the Elder Wing, and we're going to kind of cruise through the wing, knowing that, well, actually, let's do the test. Hands up if you've seen the Elder Wing already. We launched the, oh, that's quite good. So probably about a seventh of you. Uh, we launched the Elder Wing on the first Friday of December, so pretty much just before the school break. It, hands up if you're planning to bring a school group through in uh, coming weeks or months. Great, brilliant. Well, hopefully, in, in talking to you about what we've done with the Australian Collection, it might invite some conversations back at school and some school engagement. My job is to oversee the artistic program, so the curatorial team, the publications team, the public programs team, and the learning team. And it's a, it's a bit of an unusual position. There are very few assistant directors in the country who have such a broad remit. And that's because I like to take, off, take on too much. And also, the idea of bringing together learning and public programs in conversation with curatorial, in conversation with our exhibition program, to me is an essential tool or an essential component of running a vibrant museum. All too often the education team are separate from the artistic program or the artistic programming and they're kind of handed down what the curators are doing and are asked to respond. Works very differently here. Occasionally the tail wags the dog and the dog wags the tail and it works kind of from both ends which makes it really interesting. Your experience of Australian art commences, your new experience commences the moment you cross the threshold into the vestibule. And there's a new acquisition which is up here on the north wall, a work by Richard Lua. It's called The History of Australia. So not exactly a modest title. Uh, a multi-panelled work on metal. So the panels are of three different types. Let me know if you can't hear me because this is an echoey space. Uh, the, the works are produced on copper, on steel, and on brass. And if you look closely enough, you'll be able to work out which is which. The story starts prior to colonization or invasion and progresses through and finishes, finishes progresses may not be the right word, nor finish. Uh, we've got the Cronulla riots referenced here in this particular panel. Richard Lua was born in Hamilton, New Zealand, and has been in Australia for at least the, the last 10 years. And Richard's really interested in the tropes of identity, I suppose, and he's interested in this idea of this country that is now his country, now his home. So he travels with us across Australian history, and he does so in a way which I think is really interesting materially. Not only does he work with metal, but he works in a way that's quite brutal. Richard is not a big man, he's a bit shorter than me and quite slight, but he's a boxer. And it always strikes me that he's a kind of pugilist in paint. 
it strikes me that he's kind of boxing with the surface when he makes his works. He paints onto the surface and then he rubs off the paint to reveal these sections. You can see it very well here in this particular section. And this, of course, refers to the stolen generation. And we've got a reference here, of course, to World War I, uh, a reference to the goldfields here, etc. He's not trying to pin down each of these paintings into a specific episode. He's more generally referring to Australian history. Although, as I said, the reference to the Cronulla riots is there. I'm gonna read his quote that's on the wall. I hope to provide social realist commentary that documents and helps us to understand key events in Australia's history, events which I believe have shaped the Australia that we live in today, events from 65,000 years ago until now. Such is the extraordinary generosity of South Australians that this work was acquired with the support of one woman. Helen Bowden gave us the money to buy this work last year. Pretty amazing. Let's go together, and if you want to cloak, you can. You've probably already done that down the back, but cloaking is open if you'd like to cloak anything. We're going to move together through the wing. Very happy to take questions as we move, as always. Really happy to talk through how you might adapt some of the content. I'm always curious about who's in the audience, so could you pop up your hand if you're an early years or a primary educator? Great, and secondary educators? Great. Those of you who are working as relief teachers or teachers' aides? Great. Brilliant. Come on in. When we think about... Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nolene. Nolene just said, I love the way you just put it all there. And you know, this is by no means the first and by no means the last curatorial feat that we will perform in these galleries. Perhaps someone said this to me today at South Australian Tourism as it happens. They said to me, it really is only recently that we've come to see the Art Gallery of South Australia as a place where things are always changing, things are always moving. And I think that's a very important point to underscore with your visitors. Certainly eight years ago, almost to the day when I arrived, when I spoke to people about the gallery's collection, they could tell me where exact works of art were located because they had seen them there as school kids and then they'd seen them there 30 years later. That's no longer the case, I'm afraid. It, it, it kind of unruffles a few, but on the whole, it's part of what I hope is a really healthy curatorial culture because we are constantly changing and responding. In 2011, we reinstalled the Australian collection in the Elder Wing here. And in 2018, just late last year, we refreshed that display. A lot happens in seven years. In terms of collection development, a lot happens, but also in terms of research, art historical and curatorial knowledge, a lot can happen. Between 2011 and last year, we also, as you know, relaunched our European collection next door, through the wall, in the Melrose Wing. And we did so in a way that is still a little bit controversial for some, where we've taken works across time and placed them into conversation with each other. We loosened the chronological corset quite radically next door. It's still, the chronological corset's still on in this, these rooms, but it has been loosened. It's probably been cast away next door. It's just loosened a bit here. So you can experience pockets of chronology, and I'm standing in front of one. All of these works come from the mid-20th century, but they refer to a time period much earlier. 
but you'll also encounter here for the first time a series of stories or anthologies. So you're travelling through time to look at a series of stories. Australian art has been characterised by, or dominated perhaps, by one genre. What would it be? Yep, you got it, landscape. There isn't a lot of landscape in this room. We decided to resist the terrestrial for a moment and we decided to look at the astral, the idea of the sky and the astrological and the, the astronomical rather. And on the eastern side, we decided to look at the idea of our waters, rivers and seas. So we've just kind of resisted the idea of landscape for a moment. And that's not to say there's not landscape here. It's hard to completely eradicate landscape. It's very important. But we wanted to just kind of question some of those ideas, but also to reconsider how we see ourselves. So the moment you enter, there are a few things that happen, and they're happening for you, I'm hoping, right now. One is that you will hear sound, and you are hearing Bajara language, Aboriginal language. You're hearing the beautiful voice of Christian Thompson. We did a project for last year's Adelaide Biennial where Christian Thompson sings the names of the endangered plants in his endangered language of Bajara. So he's singing, it's an incantation, a listing, if you like, a taxonomy of plants that he is singing. It means that when you cross the threshold, you are reminded that you are on Aboriginal land. This year is the year of Aboriginal languages or Indigenous languages, as you would know. So it seemed a fitting tribute. It's a subtle and hopefully elegant way of kind of decolonising the space. When you're in here alone, the sound is mellifluous and echoing, as you can imagine. In the centre, there are three yalk yalk, and they've been made by Owen Yalanja. Yalanja works in Western Arnhem Land with John Mawanjul, who many of you will know through the exhibition we've just closed. These are mermaid figures, and they're figures that, of course, inhabit the seas. These works were actually acquired for the opening of the wing, the Western Wing, in 1996 and they were suspended in the space until about 10 years ago. So we're giving them a, a, new, a new way of being seen and experienced. For the first time, you can get up close to these. They hung very high previously. There is, on that note, there is quite a lot of new old work from the collection. So some works in the collection that are being presented afresh. There's also some work that's recently come into the collection. And then there's some work that has been I think you could argue among the icons of the collection, and of course, you're looking at Lewin's fish catch over there. Some of the icons we've decided to position a little bit differently, and that was to enable us to tell different stories. It's the wonderful thing about working with the collection, there's no single narrative. That means that when your students walk in, you don't have to be concerned that they don't get it, because they will get something. And they won't be far off, let me tell you, and it won't matter if they're four or 14. One of the other things that you encounter when you enter the space is a Ghana shield, and it's just over here. It's actually the first object. It's placed there very deliberately, very symbolically. 
It's one of only three historic Ghana shields known to exist in collections at this point in time. It's on loan to us from a private collection. And it's, of course, a local object from this very country. One of the great things about our collection is it includes decorative art. So it includes the kind of things that your students have in their homes. Even if they don't live in a home with artworks, and most of them won't, I imagine, they will live in a home where there are vases and cups and perhaps necklaces and photographs. And they will encounter those things. So there is some, I could probably spend the rest of my days in this room with you talking about what's going on in here. But if I even think about where Tom is over there, what's happening over there in the wall is really interesting because we've got this beautiful watercolour made by Thomas Bock in the 1840s and he has depicted with great care and attention to detail and love I think this young Tasmanian Aboriginal woman and she is wearing four times around her neck the marina shell necklaces that have been prized for millennia by Tasmanian Aboriginal people. So she's threaded them around her neck. By placing, that's a work we've had in the collection for some time, that same woman is depicted in the painting off to the left. The painting off to the left was made about 27 years later by Robert Dowling. And by the time Robert Dowling made that painting, it was really like a memorial painting because many of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people had been taken off country, forced off country, and taken up to Flinders Island. To the right of the watercolour, is one of the necklaces that you see depicted in the painting and in the watercolour and also in the photograph down below. That marina shell necklace was made just a few years ago by Lola Greeno. There is a mythology, and I think it's been a very pervasive one in this country, that Tasmanian Aboriginal people are no longer, that they were extinct and that Truganini was the last of them. It's certainly, for older generations, perhaps still a present mythology. It's certainly not the case. There are many, many descendants, and you've probably met some of them. We've worked with many of them, Ricky Maynard, Julie Goff, Lola Greeno among them. So by taking the necklace made just a few years ago and placing it alongside a watercolour that was made of the direct descendant of the necklace maker, we're able to thread those histories together. We're also able to demonstrate through the photography collection that the marina shell necklace was an object of adornment for non-Aboriginal women. The most incredible thing has happened since we put these works on display. A, du a direct descendant of the woman wearing the necklace in the photograph, whom we didn't know, has come forth and identified her. One of the really scary things for curators is placing works on the wall that you don't know much about. This is a massive collection. Some of this collection we don't know much about. We've taken a very brave step with this display and there are some works that we don't know much about yet. But we decided to take the step of placing the works on the wall, like that photograph. We didn't know its subject. And in doing so, we start to elicit new knowledge about the works. Can we move into the next space together?
Okay. Any, it's a bit easier to talk in here. Do you have any questions or comments from the first room? If I were touring my school group, I, I wouldn't feel as though I, there was a pressure to be comprehensive. I'd focus in on little stories. It's a nice little tableau, which is a fish vase over here that talks to the fish in the next room, the fish catch, and then there's the colonial watercolour. You could spend a fair bit of time just looking at that with your class. There are... The approach to the hang has been... is varied. There are lots of different strategies at work. There are lots of salon hangs. There are lots of quite kind of symmetrical hangs. Some of the works are hung on the line. There are tableaus. There are little playful moments like the trowel over here. The trowel-shaped display is, of course, comprised of trowels. We had not had these on display. There's a very sweet Elfreak, my, my colleague, uh, was responsible for this tableau. And there's a very sweet little narrative in here that's worth sharing. The baskets on the right are nut and jetty baskets. Does anyone know what we call them? Perfect, sister baskets. And they're called sister baskets because they're like two sisters because they're made up of two halves and each is kind of the same but because it's handmade, it's kind of a little bit different, yeah? So they're called sister baskets. But this is a tribute wall to sisters. So you would be familiar with the fact that the first white artists in the colony of South Australia were the sisters. Teresa Walker and Martha Barclay. Both of them are depicted here. This is Barclay, who made the painting of this work down here, made the painting of this woman down here, who is her sister, Teresa Walker, who in turn made the wax portraits, a wax portrait of herself from the Walkerville City Council, located there just last year. It's from 1838 wax from 1838, alongside these portraits of Mokara and Kurtamaru, Ghana people. So there's a kind of playfulness happening in this wall. Over on the eastern wall are a whole lot of new acquisitions that came from a recent gift. Most of them connect with the Germanic tradition that we see in places like Handorf, of course, but also in the Barossa. And you'll see all sorts of common day objects vying or jostling for attention with celebrated paintings by Louis Tannert, Charles Hill. There's a little landscape of a Germanic home with a gold frame towards the top. That's actually a very early Hans Heysen. So you see this idea of kind of taking these works with a view to telling a new way of thinking about the artists we know and love. Now I've pulled back the covers over here this is arguably our most beautiful wing at the Art Gallery of South Australia, but it's bedeviled by light. That's why it's so lovely to stand in here now. But that is the enemy of art. So we decided for the first time to do something that pretty much museums have been doing forever, and that is to conceal the works at risk because we felt that we wanted to show them so eagerly, with such passion, that we thought the risks of people missing them were greater than the risks, the risks of people missing out entirely, if you see what I mean. What you see here under these, and you can spend some time in a moment, are the works of Charles Flanagan and also the works of Ilan Tariba. Both of them were men who were incarcerated, at the, both Aboriginal men. 
They were both men who were incarcerated at the time that they made these works. They were made in prison, these works. Uh, Charlie Flanagan's were made, what have we got? They were both made at the end of the 19th century in the 1890s, just pretty astounding. There was a relatively progressive sheriff at the time working in Fanny Bay Jail up in Darwin and he encouraged both men in their final days, Charlie Flanagan was hung, to create art. Ilon Tariba's work was included in what many argue to be the first exhibition of Aboriginal artefacts or Aboriginal culture, if you like, as art. There had been avid collecting from the moment of contact. From 1770 onwards, there's avid collecting. In fact, prior to that, the Dutch had collected on the West Coast. But it's not until the late 19th century that we start to see a rethinking of Aboriginal artefacts and culture as art, and this, is a, this testifies to that. I'll cover these back up now, but please come and have a look. I know they're a little bit high for some of your younger students, and we've been thinking, scratching our heads. The works are, all of these works are from the South Australian Museum's collection. They are digitised and they are online on their website. So that's the good news. Okay, let's keep travelling. Okay, I, I imagine you're starting to see some works that you recognise in here. You'll see works that you recognise but arguably not in the place that you've seen them in before, not in the company perhaps that you've seen them in before. There are some really fun curatorial features and whilst I grant that you're not in primary and secondary classrooms talking about curating in an explicit way, I do think that kids are really interested in how things are put together. And I think that kids of all ages notice how things are displayed. And I think it's great to have a kind of meta-conversation about that. One of the meta-conversations I like to have the most is, is about this disaster wall over here. And this idea of disaster is something that pervades Australian colonial art. It becomes the kind of metaphor the sh that registers the shock, if you like, of colonisation. So you've got these incredible paintings by particularly James Shaw, who was fond of a catastrophe. He was a catastrophizer. We all know them, don't we? I work with a couple. But <laughs> he was fond of, of drawing attention to catastrophe, to bushfire, to fire, and of course, to shipwreck and even to the big freeze. My favourite's the work on the right, which is the Antarctic kind of scene. These works are from the 1860s and 70s, which I think is phenomenal. They look much more contemporary. The approach that Tracy Locke in Hanging This Wall has taken is to create a kind of the chaos inherent in the works or the, the drama is present in the hang, 
Notice that she hasn't taken her ruler or her laser level and politely measured the distance between each of the works. Notice that the kind of energy and syncopation on the wall is reflective of the subject matter. So sometimes the way we hang things can help underscore the way that the work makes us feel and we can shake those things up. And, and you'll notice that we've taken, you know, arguably our most important Australian painting and we've placed it in new company. I'm really relieved to see it off a red wall, to be honest. It's breathing much better. And it's in the company of some works that are about, mostly of Morialta Falls as it happens, that are about water and about falls. And all of a sudden you start to appreciate Robert's cascading dust, uh, cascading sheep running through that dust to water and in fact most probably to their death in a different way. The energy of the hang and of course it imitates the waterfall, the placement of those paintings imitates that waterfall. There are a couple of works by Auguste Rodin who didn't come to Australia but of course one of the points about Australian art that we're trying to make in this hang is that the borders and boundaries of Australian art were looser in the late 19th century and early 20th century than they are right now. So-called Australian artists, you could ask the question of what is an Australian artist, but Australian artists, some of them born here, some of them not, were travelling back and forth. There were European artists who were living for long periods of time in Australia. There were Australian artists who had careers in Europe, which were essentially where they did all of their art making and all of their exhibition history. There are artists like Eugene von Gerard, whose work you see over here and over here, who of course made a living bringing their, for in his case, the kind of Dusseldorf school of thinking and, and working to Australia. We've been a bit cheeky and popped in a few works like Joseph Wright of Derby's work over here, which is, of course, Mount Vesuvius in Napoli, so in Naples in Italy. And that vies for attention with the work just near it, a corroboree scene by Glover. Now, keep in mind that John Glover was 67 when he arrived in Australia, had an established career in England, we think of Glover as an Australian artist, but part of the point of this hang is that we start to kind of go, well, hang on, what does this mean? And we feel as these, these, we feel as though these conversations, that it's time to have these conversations, I suppose, and how can we have them on the wall at the art gallery? You've got the incredible work of Tommy McRae over here and William Barrack, both Aboriginal men who were using so-called non-Aboriginal materials to make art in the late 19th century once again. And then, as I mentioned, you've got these bronzes by Rodin, not known as someone who visited Australia, but nonetheless someone who was experimenting with form with Australian contemporaries. At a time that Tom Roberts was working in the UK, Rodin was there as well. And I'm sure you've picked up the play between that figure and the figure on horseback, that extended diagonal physical form, one male, one female. Probably one of the highlights of the loans that have come, probably 96% of what you're seeing is in this collection, but there are a couple of works. I pointed them out before and now I'm going to point out the towers here. They've also come from the museum and they would be the highlight for me at least. The museum has 404 of these objects in its collection. They're acquired in about 1904. The label will tell you if I'm right or off by a year or two. 
They were made at a particular time and place, and they've really never been repeated. We can't find a precursor for them, nor were they repeated subsequently. They were made in Kalapanina Mission, which is on Deary Country in Lake Eyre, so way up in the northern part of South Australia. They're made from gypsum and found objects and obviously ochre, and they're understood to be place markers, identity markers, direction markers. We've borrowed just a selection of these objects in a section of the rune that we refer to as the marvellous. These objects have fascinated artists, Aboriginal and non. Margaret Preston drew them when they were in the museum's collection. There's a wonderful selection of paintings by both Hillier and then subsequently by Rosa Fiveash, South Australian botanical artists of these. We continue to kind of, art continues, and I love this about it, it continues to ask us questions. We don't always have to expect it to give us answers. We just have to sometimes shut up for long enough that we can listen to what it's trying to say or what it's trying to ask us. I think we all get nervous when we're teaching sometimes with art that we, we need to know what to say to the painting. It's okay not to say anything and to let it say something to you. So as we travel through, any, any comments or questions about anything? I know there's a lot to take in. Very straight. They're very conservative in Sydney. I can say that as a former Sydney cider. So things get pretty, pretty crazy in here, pretty exciting. There's a couple of things happening in the centre of the gallery here. We, we kind of wanted to think about the stories that Adelaide could tell. Clearly, it's not a South Australian collection of art. It's much bigger than South Australia. It's much bigger than Australia. But you've got to find the local nuances in the national picture. Otherwise, it's not going to speak. And so on the western side, in this incredible pink space, a colour that's actually called Picasso pink, interestingly enough, and we've used upstairs in the Vollard suite, we've taken this colour to set against this colour the idea of the Cameleers. Now, many of you would know roughly or loosely the story of the Cameleers, but of course what became apparent to us in looking at our collection was that the name of this wing, being the Elder Wing, and the story of the so-called Afghan Cameleers were intrinsically linked. It was Elder who actually imported the first lot of camels and supported the Cameleers to come. It was Elder who, in a sense, had bankrolled the event that we see unrolling here, unfurling here, which is Sturt's expedition in the painting by Chevalier. The camel, the impact of Cameleer culture, and remember Cameleers were from the countries that we now think of as Pakistan, Afghanistan, northern India. The Cameleers' impact was such that there were incredible accounts of cultural exchange between not only, of course, European settlers and Cameleers, but Aboriginal people. And on the left-hand side, there's a nod to that. There's a wonderful Albert Namatjira who needs no introduction to you, Western Aranda man, and it's a classic touchstone Namatjira. 
But what you need to just, when you spend a little bit of time with the work, you'll notice that the words, or the word rather, salam, has been painted. It's actually probably carved into the tree, but it's been painted by Namatjira. The word salam means peace or welcome in Arabic. And of course, Namatjira was a camelier before he was a painter, and he would have, as would have many, all cameliers working across Central Australia, been working with Afghani, Pakistani cameliers at the time. Below the Namatjira are some wonderful pipes that have been carved by an artist called Jim Kite, who was a Southern Aranda artist. And Jim Kite is the first Aboriginal artist, we think, I hate to make definitive statements because art history is always evolving and teaching us things, but we think he was the first Aboriginal artist in Australia to hold a solo exhibition, and that was here in Adelaide in 1913. And at least two of those pipes were acquired from that exhibition. He worked with Walter, um, sorry, he, he worked with Baldwin Spencer and Gillen. So the Spencer and Gillen expedition, he was part of that. Over here on the east, typically east, we've played with the idea of the east here, as you can kind of see. We're looking at Orientalism, at Australian artists like Rupert Bunny, who was born in Australia, met a French wife, ended up for most of his life in France, but like many of the French and Europeans, was interested in Orientalism. Set against this lily wallpaper, which is, of course, a Morris wallpaper. Adelaide has a very large collection, thanks to the Bar Smiths of Morris material, so we've presented that here as a nod to that history. But we're also trying to take some of the icons. So we've got the Gardner's Creek work over here by Tom Roberts, the Conda holiday at Mentone, and of course the very celebrated nine by fives. And rather than underscoring the kind of green and gold heroic story of pastoral Australia, we've taken those works in a way that starts to allow us to think about their influences from outside of Australia. That the artists making them were deeply inspired, particularly by Japanese prints and the composition in Japanese prints, such as the collection that we can bring those works into, com into conversation. One of the artists was so inspired by Orientalism, and he was the artist, Mortimer Mempes, who was born in Port Adelaide, that he built an entirely Japanese home and spent a lot of time in Japan and other places. He was a man of the world, completely cosmopolitan. How are you going? You're all good? Great. Now I feel, oh, I'll, just, I'll just reference a couple of things here that I think are very, particularly noteworthy. The sisters theme is played out again in here, which kind of leads me to share with you that not only are we looking for different stories every time we look at the collection, but we're also looking for artists that have perhaps been overlooked. And of course, many of them are women. So part of our mission was to really look at the women artists in the collection. We don't have nearly enough women artists in the collection because their work wasn't supported at the time of their making in the same way. The Hambidge sisters, there were four of them. They all made art and we've got quite a collection. So this is the work of the Hambidge sisters based here in Adelaide over on this southern wall. 
And then another important South Australian woman is Bessie Davidson, who ended up living in Paris and then in regional France. Just a month before we opened the wing, her goddaughter approached us and said that she had Bessie's paint box and would, be, would we be interested in having her paint box? So this is the new acquisition here that's been gifted and it, it features a French coastal landscape. It's a paint box from about 1930 and it's a great way of introducing students to the technologies at the time. Such was the sophistication of these little travelling boxes when you were painting en plein air that you could paint your work but then slide it into the box so that it wouldn't move about and the oil paint could dry more slowly. Now this is of course Bessie Davidson here and Bessie Davidson is the great aunt of Sally Smart who, who makes art today and was born in um, the lower Flinders Ranges. You can see another curatorial strategy at work on the eastern wall with those coastal landscapes. It's almost like a wave that starts to build up the wall. But by positioning a group of these paintings, the horizon line is kind of underscored, isn't it? You get that sense of the horizon line being repeated. A return to the watery introduction that you have in Gallery 1. The next space is, is a little bit tight, so we might and we're probably almost a little bit out of time, so walk through that space and have a good look, but then I'll meet you in the following gallery. So you've moved through a room that deals with the kind of, with the numinous, with the spiritual. Artists who were resisting realistic painting on the whole, and they were looking for something, they were kind of searching in a sense for art that spoke deeply and directly. So you see the work of Marjel Hinder in that room, her husband, Frank Hinder. You see the incredible work of Clarice Beckett, who you're familiar with, of course. Um, and many artists in our collection, including some so and other South Australian women, um, 
Doric Black, of course. You see, get to see some work by Margaret Preston and also some Cossington Smiths. So neither of whom were... Oh, well, actually, Margaret Preston was born in Adelaide, so I guess that counts. <laughs> this final room is... Um, we can't be accused of ending with a whimper rather than a bang, I would say. I would argue that this final room, of course it continues on to the rest of the Australian art collection, but in this final room of the Elder Wing, you're met with this avalanche of cultural material and the eye is thrown around this display, which includes Moving Image, a work by Dushan Marek. And if you look at that screen now, you'll see some puppets. The puppets themselves are in the cabinet above. They're on loan from the National Film and Sound Archive. This wall's a tribute to Marek. Marek is quite well known in Adelaide, not nearly well known enough the world over. He and his brother Wojta Marek trained at the Prague, School of, Prague Art School, which at the time was obsessed with surrealism. And they were proponents of surrealism, but their surrealist practice was completely interrupted by war. And in 1948, they were sent to a detention camp. They were Czechoslovakian. They were sent to a detention camp in Dillenburg. And while they were in Dillenburg, Dushan Marek painted on... He pulled two of the slats from under his bed, out from under the bed, and he painted on them. And those slats are just over there on that wall. Can you see those two long paintings? They're the slats from his bed in Dillenburg, Germany, in 1948. After leaving Dillenburg, he made his way to Gibraltar, and it's there at Gibraltar that he boards the SS Charlton Sovereign to make his way to Australia. He wanted to come to Australia because, well, hey, it was a safe option, but B, he'd read the Surrealist Manifesto, and it was André Breton, the father of Surrealism, who'd penned the manifesto and who had claimed that Australia and the Pacific were at the heart of the Surrealist world. In fact, he made a map of the world, which pretty much picked up all the pieces of the map and threw them back down. And when it landed, classic Surrealist kind of game in a way, when it landed, Papua New Guinea and Australia were right in the centre of the world. I mean, it really just... Yeah, it kind of just depends on how you look at the map anyway. It is, it is a globe, for God's sake. We just look at it the wrong way all the time. So as he, he, he did uh, board the SS Charlton Sovereign with his brother and they were fond of a game of cards and not only that, they were fond of doing some paintwork on the way and this work here, which we've had in the collection since the 1970s, is a work that Duchamp Marek painted in 1948. The works that you encounter in Gallery 1, the bark paintings I was standing against, were made in 1948, so there's a nice kind of return that's going on. 1948 was a very significant year the world over. This is the, the table itself, and you can tell from the slats here that it was the table, and he painted on both sides of the table as he was crossing the equator. Now, I know, some of you know this gallery's collection just as well as I do, I reckon, and you know this work, but you only know this side, because since it was acquired in 1972, two I want it yet, 1972, we've only ever shown one side. So as I said before, part of the challenge of this hang is not just to acquire and display new work, but it's to think about work that you know in a new way. So this is a bit of a, a breakthrough. I mean, it's quite simple really. It's like, God, we could have done that a while ago, pulled that off. So Marek travelled not only to Australia, but once he arrived in Australia, he made a trip to New Guinea. And it's in New Guinea that he collects many of the items that you see on that wall. This wall is a tribute to Marek, but it's also a tribute to Breton. 
Andre Breton, and there's a photograph over on the right-hand side on the wall just above Kylie, Andre Breton collected both European and non-European, including some Aboriginal art, and exhibited that in this kind of Wunderkammer, cacophony style. So this does a few things. It takes its spirit from Breton's wall, but in doing so, tells a South Australian version of a Northern Hemisphere story. Does that make sense? I made the point before about not knowing everything that was in the collection. Can you imagine how much fun we had accessing many of these items? Some of them are on loan. Marek's collection, his artwork came to us. The objects that he collected in Papua New Guinea went to the museum. And they very kindly allowed us to show those so they're here from the museum on loan. We found, made a few discoveries. And one of them is, of course, Len Lai. And Len Lai is the artist who made the digital work over here. Lai was born in New Zealand, based in New Zealand, but spent some time in Sydney and was quite taken by Aboriginal art. And he made this particular animation, Tu Salava. I need to check the date because it's new to me. In London in 1929. So quite a radical, experimental filmmaker. There's a whole Len Lai Centre now in New Zealand, and in fact our new boss used to be the old boss at the Len Lai Centre. I hope that's a, a good start. There is so much, and we will also be constantly refreshing, particularly the works on paper and some of the more vulnerable pieces, as I've mentioned. We will always have the representation of the kind of iconic works on the wall, but we will rotate them. You know, the Joy Hester, this Joy Hester here has just been required, requested for loan. So about 400 works from our collection travel every year, something to think about as well. So sometimes Evening Shadows, for instance, is my favourite loan of the moment because Evening Shadows has just come off the wall because it's going to be exhibited in a project initiated by Tom Nicholson for the Australian Centre of Contemporary Art in Melbourne. And I kind of like, there's some perverse pleasure for me in the idea that one of the most traditional and conservative paintings in our collection is going to be part of the one of the edgiest contemporary art spaces in Australia. <laughs> Tom has reprised a project he did with us in 2014, where he did a, 2012 rather, he did a call out for copies of Evening Shadows. Many of you would remember it. He's reprised that project. So there are going to be copies of Evening Shadows all over the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne, which is fun. We've made some tweaks and some changes to the gallery up here and we'll continue to do so. And of course, we'll continue to play with what we do in this gallery around the back here called Gallery 6. I'm just about to head into Quilty land, as many of you would know. Um, the Quilty works started arriving yesterday and I'll be hanging those works over the next little while. I think probably particularly for those of you in secondary school or arguably upper primary as well, he's an artist of great interest. I don't know if the team have already told you, but his son is working with us as well. He has a son who turns 13 on Valentine's Day and his son is quite a keen painter. So he has worked with us too find a new way of thinking about our studio space. So that's going to be happening. That show opens on the 1st of March and it will be, there will be Ben Quilty work in the vestibule and then of course all of downstairs. Impressive, still standing, 
first Friday night after school goes back. Well done, well, very well done. Thank you so much for supporting us, for supporting Kylie and Tom and all the work that happens here at the Art Gallery. We admire you greatly and want you to keep talking to us about what you need and what you need from us. Thank you.